Oh, I'm sorry. Did I break your concentration? Who are those guys? I'm Galen. And I'm Doug. And we're those movie guys. Bringing movie reviews and previews to the masses since 2007. Today is Monday, September 10th, 2007, and it's DVDs this week. We review the releases of The Lives of Others and a documentary that probably most of you have never heard of, including Galen, <laughs> Air Guitar Nation. After those two releases, we go over our top five worst movies of 2006. But we're going to start things off with our review of The Lives of Others. When we watched the Oscars this year and heard the winner of the foreign film Oscar, I think it's fair to say we were both pissed off. Not that we had anything against The Lives of Others, especially having not seen it yet, but we both felt that Pan's Labyrinth was the best film of the year overall, and found it hard to believe that Lives of Others could talk. Well, now we have finally seen The Lives of Others a film that tells the story of an East German playwright who is being spied on for suspected subversive activity by the Stasi, the East German secret police. I'm just going to ask you straight out, Doug. Did it deserve to beat out Pan's Labyrinth, or can we add this to the list of things the Academy got wrong? I think this did not deserve to beat out Pan's Labyrinth. Pan's Labyrinth is a much better film. But that being said, I still like this movie. Um, I thought it really was a realistic account of, of how the government can go about bugging and spying on people. Nothing really seemed far-fetched at all. And I thought the political and thematic message of the movie was very, very strong, especially in abusing privacy and almost the government being a dictatorship. You can't say anything bad about the government or you'll be arrested if they're watching you. And it kind of makes the viewer almost paranoid or eerie that you know, even us doing this podcast across the internet, who's to say what who could be watching, who could be listening? You know, it kind of raises questions. Yeah, well, I personally love Homeland Security, and I would never say anything negative about them. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> You're definitely a large supporter of this administration. I am, I am. I am. <laughs> I'm GW's biggest supporter. Uh, well, you know, I'm going to agree with you on one point, that it didn't deserve to beat out Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, and I'm not... I'm not too far off of you otherwise. I, I don't think I liked it quite as much as you did. But I, I do agree with you that it is it does give this interesting account of you know what life was like in East Germany under the communist rule. And that was fascinating. And it, it's something that a lot of people living in America and in other countries probably don't know a whole lot about. Um, I, one of the things that I think obviously strikes you is the performance of Ulrich Muhi, and I 
it's been a while since I've had German, so the pronunciation might be off there. But I thought he was fantastic in, in the lead role. Um, I certainly agree. It's just, it, he, he has moments where his, he just lets his face do the acting for him, which is really what a great actor is supposed to do. And he, he never mugs for the camera, and he never, he never overplays his hand at all. And, it, I mean, there's one scene in particular whenever he's uh, interrogating Krista, you know, and whenever she kind of, you know, obviously he's, he's going to get in trouble if he doesn't break her and get the information out. But whenever she gives up the information, you can tell on his face that he's disappointed by it. And it's just like from looking in his eyes. And it's such a quiet moment, but it he... He just carries it perfectly. And I feel that his whole performance is like that. I certainly agree with you there. I think I think all of the acting was very well done. Yeah, I throughout. mean, he's clearly the standout performance, though. I agree. But, I um, like the characterization, too. I mean, not only was his performance well done, just the, the realization of his character, see, both him and Krista. See, I have, actually have a problem with his character. And this isn't his fault, this is more a script problem. But I, I don't understand why, after years of being in this Stasi regime, that, and, and I mean, obviously he's to the point that he's so trusted with the methods that he's in fact an instructor, the future Stasi. And I don't understand what his motivation is for suddenly breaking with that. Over. Yeah, I I didn't get that. I mean, the only thing I could think of is maybe it it's just like his love of art won out, you know, and he just had such a love of the of of art that he couldn't do it. But I don't know. That seems to me a flimsy excuse. But the, it's the only thing that comes to mind for me. Maybe some of our listeners got a better idea of it than I did. I was going to say, actually, I, I think I agree with you. I mean, I, at first, I guess I didn't think of it that way because the movie makes the transition very smooth right, and, and almost hidden. But I guess when you think back to it, there, I mean, the way he's portrayed in the beginning of the film, yeah, he's, you know, completely stoned on his, you know, stone ironclad on what he's doing. You couldn't imagine just... One case of a playwright, right? And and his, and his, his mind. and his regular duties are worse than just espionage. He it's his job to break people, right? You know, and and, yet and he gets broken so easily. Yeah, it, it's I I don't know that I mean that seemed odd to me, and it didn't quite seem to make sense. Um, obviously we're. <laughs> We're giving stuff away, but I figure since the movie is, has been out for a while, I think we can do that. We're all right. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm going to say another thing I liked about the film, though, before I go on to more problems that I had. And I thought that the sound was terrific. I mean, the sound you get of the footfalls, of, of everything, just telephones ringing, creaking, it, it all adds to this atmosphere of, being watched 
and and I could maybe I'm crazy here, but I could swear like when the telephone's wrong, you you got this echo, and it it made everything seem claustrophobic and kind of closed in, and it it just added to this sense of almost like an ant farm type of mentality. Like these people are in an ant farm being watched by the Stasi. And, and I the, certainly agree with you. Yeah, the footfalls and stuff are the same way. I mean, it, it's just very ominous sound to the whole soundtrack. Well, I certainly agree with you there. I think a soundtrack, more often than not, will make or break a movie. Yeah, absolutely. I, it, I, I have a big thing with there being too much sound a lot of the times, but I think in this movie and the lives of others, it works beautifully. It does heighten the suspense. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, but I, I'm going to get to a few more negatives I had now that I've, I've gotten the positives out of the way. I, th I thought there were some parts that were a little cliched or maybe a lot cliched. Uh, a scene that I think should be outlawed from all film. It, it was in, uh, one of my least, well, we'll get into our least favorite films of last year, but Casino Royale, the whole woman in the shower when she's psychologically disturbed. <laughs> I think that's something we need to eliminate from cinema because it's it's such a complete and total cliche at this point. Yeah, but it's hot and sexy and edgy. No, it, it really isn't. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Um, maybe it was, yeah, no, it's, it's not, I, maybe a little in Casino Royale, not at all in Lives of Others, but I mean, you know, you know, it's like a woman gets raped and what does she do immediately? She goes to the shower. Maybe. <laughs> of course, what else is there? You gotta clean yourself off. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it just, to me, not that, a, not that that never happens, but whether a cliche is true or not, it's still a cliche and you should avoid it. You know, I don't know how you felt about that. But. All I can say is poor Martina Gadeck. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> you know, I, I don't have a problem with her. Just keep her out of the shower. <laughs> the other cliche, and this is something I want to spend a little bit of time talking about, is that I, I would have given the movie a higher score until we got to the ending. And the ending for me didn't work at all. And and part of it, and this is a spoiler, so if you don't want to hear this, stop, okay? But whenever Krista gets killed in basically a completely random way, I was I, I just said, this is ridiculous. This is so contrived. This should be in a worse film than this. You know, I felt that the lives of others had set itself up to be such a, a much better film than the type of movie that would just randomly kill off the character to instill drama into the plot. And that's exactly what they do. I agree they probably could have found a better way. I might not be as, as critical on it as you are, only because I think one of my negatives is the pacing is a little on the slow side. Right. And I have to admit... Kind of the, the climax of that scene there you know, actually picks things up. Yeah, it was, it was kind of cheap. Uh, if you're bored, kill off a character. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's always the first rule of Hollywood. Um, but no, anyways, it, it was kind of cheap, but 
you know, there just happened to be a car passing along that she throws herself in it. But I guess in a way I can kind of see what she was doing. I liked Krista Maria's character. I yeah. thought, you know, here she is ratting out her lover yeah. to become free. And, you know, she, I guess it's a sudden change that she just can't deal with it. And now oh, so she throws, so throws you, herself in front of a car. You saw it as a suicide. Yes. Okay, I didn't. I, I, I thought it was just an accident. See, I saw it as a suicide because she runs out in her bathrobe, doesn't she? Yeah. And then she kind of runs in the middle of the road and just stops there. And Yeah, I guess, I, I don't so. know. I mean, jumping in front of traffic doesn't seem like an efficient way of committing suicide to me. That's pretty final, I'd say. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, actually, I would say not, because you're no way guaranteed you're going to get killed by a car you jump in front of. Yeah, but it was a big truck. And she was in an apartment. Why not jump out of the window? No, I don't think you, you could survive from that, too. I think you'd be less likely to survive a jump from a window than a car. Because the car jumped? can slam on the brakes, and who knows what happens. You know, maybe what it slows down. What if she jumped out of the window into the middle of the street, thus getting hit by the car? That would have been pretty final. That, that would have been final. You know, okay, so maybe that could have been the thing. Shoot yourself or slit your wrist, something. But you, you at least agree with me that the the, the sui direction of suicide makes that scene at least a little more believable. Yeah, and making it a suicide does. I, I didn't get that impression that it was a suicide. Maybe I completely missed that, but I don't know. Jumping in front of traffic just doesn't seem like a method of suicide to me. I mean, I, jumping in front of a train or something. Because <laughs> that, that. <laughs> that will work. But, yeah, but, that would be a good way, too, I suppose. Yeah, but jumping in front of a truck, I don't know. And, and plus, you have to make sure you jump out just in time, or else you're going to smack the side of the truck instead of the front. You know, you have to you have to get just enough in front of it that you don't run into the side of the truck, but not too far in front that the car can swerve All and right. miss well, you. Technicalities aside, I think the message <laughs> of suicide was clear enough. All right, <laughs> I, we'll we'll drop that one. But in any event, another issue I had with the ending, besides that, was that it gets into what you were talking about with the pacing. I felt that it it the ending drug out longer than it needed to because the movie was really about you know the private lives of people being violated. And once, you know, once the movie ends, like once they decide to stop spying on, um, I forget the playwright's name, it's eluded me. But once they decide to stop spying on him and Krista, well, and Krista. Or Draymond. Thank you. Uh, once they decide to stop spying on him, to me, the theme of the movie is done. I mean, because that's, that's what the theme of the movie was, is the, the psychology both of the, the, the voyeur and the unwitting exhibitionist in this sort of spy game that's going on, this violation of private life. And once that stops, what's your movie about? I think they tried to create such a strong character of Captain Beastland that... Right. That's kind of what it was about. It was about him. What happened to him. What, I know, you know. But that's not what doing. the movie was really about. At least not to me. Not from a thematic standpoint. 
it, that's what the movie becomes. Well, I agree. I agree. It, it does kind of disrupt the theme a little bit. You know, either make your movie ab- about theme, you know, about spying, about dictatorship, about government abusing privacy, or make it a character study. Right. And in this instance, they tried to make it both ways. Now, this goes back to what we were saying earlier, that you know, they kind of messed up the character of Captain Beesland with making him so such a hard interrogator at the beginning, instructing right. people to demoralize people for answers. Yeah. And then... Through one playwright and his lover, you know, he, he softens up. Softens up. And, and almost becomes a recluse, you know, on. Yeah. Uh, by the end of it. Something that, you know, people kind of shy away from when they see these type of people coming down the street. You remember Creepy Walking Guy. I remember Creepy Walking Guy, yes. And, you know, that's almost what Captain Beeslin becomes. Sorry yeah. to our viewers for the inside joke. Yeah, well, and then then it goes on and continues even past the collapse of the Berlin Wall, and it's like it it, yeah. it felt like you don't need that. I mean, you that, know the Berlin Wall collapses. I mean, are we getting a historical lesson, or right, are that, we getting a film? That's where it went way too far. Yeah, I I mean, I I think it could have stopped once once Viesland is told that you know you're never going to do important work again. I think the movie could have ended there with him in the mailroom. I think that would have been a perfect ending for it. I agree. But, oh well. So, we've gone on long enough. What are you going to give the lives of others? Well, I started out liking this film, and I still do like it, but I have Did to I make you hate it? You've, well, maybe not <laughs> hate it, but you've convinced me to lower the score. Bottom line... It's certainly not as good as Pan's Labyrinth. It doesn't carry even close to the emotional strength. No. Uh, Few films some good, do. Some good political themes, um, but that cold, distant feel is going to leave me with a three and a half. Yeah, I'm giving a three and a half as well, and I pretty much have summed up why. Well, I must admit to a bit of befuddlement as to how to introduce Air Guitar Nation. I haven't seen the film, or even heard of it, before you told me you wanted to talk about it on the show. So, I went to that all-knowing movie panopticon, IMDB, to find out more. There I learned it is a documentary created by a cameraman whose only previous work of note is the abysmal TV series Project Runway. But then again, Michael Mann was first known for Miami Vice, so I guess all directors have to start somewhere. Air Guitar Nation is a documentary that follows a bunch of losers, <clears throat> I, I mean colorful individuals, around as they partake in the Air Guitar National Championships. And of course, once they win the National Championships, they get a chance to compete for World Air Guitar Champion in Finland. Trust me, I couldn't make this up if I tried. So, Doug, I give up on my introduction. Just tell me, after seeing the film, are you strumming your invisible chords, getting ready for the championships, or are you content to live your Van Halen fantasies through Guitar Hero instead? Well, as with any documentary, it's going to be probably a more love-it-hate-it type of situation. If you uh, find interest in the topic, you'll love it. If you hate the topic, you're going to hate the movie and find it incredibly boring. And this, of course, is the case here. (laughs) <laughs> I, hate, I hate to say this, but a lot of this review is probably going to be my personal opinion, and I, of course, love rock and roll, so I love this movie. 
Yeah, well, isn't that what a review is anyway, though? Personal opinion. Well, you would like to think in a typical review you're unbiased. You know, you're looking at both the technical and the acting and the, the, the filmmaking itself. Yeah. Now, while I can't say this movie excels as a documentary, you know, it's not revolutionary. It doesn't do anything that stands out from, you know, other documentaries that I've seen. It certainly has no problems, you know, that it does a lot of things, does more things right than it does wrong. Right. But first of all, you know, it, the movie is kind of about exactly what you explained in the introduction. It's, you have these people who sometimes they can actually play a guitar, but for the purposes of this competition, play a fake one. Why? And, go ahead. Why? Why? Like, if you can play a real guitar, why would you do this? Well, as the uh, competitor in the movie who can play the guitar because his band wasn't a success, uh, even though he does have some talent. In fact, he ended up writing the theme song to the movie. Really? It's pretty good, actually. It's pretty good. It's uh, doing quite well on iTunes for download, believe it or not. I think uh, three people looked at it. Oh, wow. That's more than listen to us, so... Right, well, so they're ahead of the game. Um, <laughs> but I love the music in it. I mean, you have great rock songs from Boston, Queen, The Who, mm. Judas Priest, Motorhead. I mean, it's all in there. So, of course, if you're into any of that music, you're probably going to find this very interesting. And you're going to find it funny. It is. It's very ridiculous to see these people kind of up on stage almost gyrating to songs. Right. You know, great rock songs that they are. Because they are losers, correct? Is that is that a fair judgment? or It is fair at first. You know, what I like about the film is when the characters are introduced, the people who compete in these competitions, they're kind of treated as almost crazy. But you know, as the film goes on, they get less and less crazy, I'll say, because the, the film decides to focus on the two U.S. competitors who travel to fin Finland for the international competition. Mm -hmm. At the beginning, you have a, a wide variety, and yeah, most of them are druggies and all sorts of lower life forms, I guess I'll say. <laughs> if Hopefully I don't offend anybody. If so, too bad. But, you don't uh, want to offend the lower life forms. But... In the case of the person who wins the, the U.S. competition, you know, he's just a regular guy. He has attended college. He has a good job. He runs his own business. In fact, one of the competitors is a budget analyzer for our own government. So you get it. <laughs> oh, I'm serious. I'm quite serious. I, I, I believe you. I'm just saying I'm not sure if that's something you'd brag about <laughs> considering our budget situation. Well, maybe. <laughs> my, my point is, you know, these aren't just people who have no lives. Right. You know, they're, they're people that treat it as a hobby. And I think that's one of the, the strengths of this film. Through the characters performing and through the filmmaking, you could almost consider this a, just an interpretive dance, as if you were watching a play at a theater. You know, yeah, it's a, certainly a very, very different type of music, but it's... It's really the same thing. I mean, you have, it's not, the point of the competition isn't necessarily to make it look like you're playing the guitar exactly as you should. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, never once do you watch these people perform and say, oh, man, you know, that fooled me. I, it looks like he really could play guitar. No, no, it, it's merely a performance thing. Right. Yeah, that's why a lot of times they do certain moves almost like they're throwing the guitar up in the air. At the end of their song, it's like they smash it into the stage and stuff. And I just think a lot of them are out there having a good time. But that brings me to kind of the, the meat and potatoes of the movie, and that's behind the scenes of this film. There are some good social issues. I mean, a lot of it, because of the interviews with the American competitors and the competitors from the other countries, you know, America kind of treats what it doesn't invent as a joke. We kind of, right. some people may feel we have that elitist attitude, and that's certainly prevalent here, you know, as... <laughs> well, I agree with you. I mean, I, particularly in soccer. Soccer is the big example where... You know, it's the most popular sport in the world, but we treat it like a joke in America because we don't play it, and we didn't invent it. But <laughs> I think air guitar is a little different. I, I mean, I, I I don't know. I think it's okay to treat it as a joke. <laughs> well, it depends. I mean... I don't think you're necessarily being a national chauvinist by saying it's... you think it's a joke. No, but what I'm saying is it's kind of a parallel to that. Right. Yeah, air guitar is certainly a, a funnier thing, and you know it also depends whether you're, which side of the fence you're on. Can you see this as an interpretive dance and an art form and a performance, or do you see it as more of a comedy act? Yeah. And, and you even get that between the two U.S. competitors. You have the one guy who's very, very serious about it. You know, in fact, he gets he competes several times against the Asian. Well, he's Asian-American, I'll say, because he's representing the U.S. He's more treating it as a, a comedy performance. I mean, he takes it seriously, but, you know, he's very crass about it. He says it would never be something he'd dedicate his life to. It's just something he has fun doing. Right. And, you know, the, the guy who thinks of it as an art form gets beat by the guy who thinks it's more of an act. Yeah. And it, it, that competition, I think, works very well. Also, working for the movie's benefit, I, I think there's some stylized, I'll say it this way, it kind of reminds me of the 80s, of course, that's my favorite decade, and that's probably why I like the film so much, but as the characters are introduced, it uses these kind of neat screenshot cutouts of the characters against like a more of an 80s grunge background. Uh-huh. I can't explain them, of course, without seeing the movie, but... I just liked I liked how it was done. I liked the montaging the filmmaker does mm-hmm. through the final competition in Finland. You know, it, it it's not trying to set up suspense. Oh, did he win? Did he win? You know, you, you, you're there to enjoy the music. And, and that's yeah. according to the, and I'm sorry, I forget his name, the, the one who created the Air, Air Guitar Championships in Finland. That That's his biggest kick that's why he created this was a way to get people to stop fighting you know war war through competition not through guns right that that's that's realistic again again, i know that's (laughs) probably the negative of it is the fact that it's air guitar it makes it's so funny it it, 
I guess it discredits the movie. You know, George Bush would be so into that if we <laughs> could organize a world guitar, air guitar championship. Like, it'd have to be country music, so it'd be like country guitar, but like, he would do I, that. If this were country music, I probably would have hated that. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I can't stress the, the love it hated enough, you know. I think actually, because you enjoy rock music from the 80s. From oh, the yeah. 70s, I actually think you would really like this yeah. film. Yeah, I, and I, my comments aren't necessary. I can't comment against the film, obviously. My snide remarks are mainly against the, the people who do this as a hobby, which maybe I shouldn't do that. But Well, it, I, there's nothing wrong with that. It is funny to watch. I, I mean, I laugh, too, especially at the start of it. Once you're with the film, you know, I guess you, I should say that as a credit to the filmmaker, as you watch you learn to associate with these guys. You learn to maybe think like they do and maybe, I don't know, treat it with more respect as a yeah. joke. But See, because I haven't played air guitar since I was like 13. You know? <laughs> and so, very true. I, probably a lot of us have. And how old are they, these people? Are they like our they age? They're all over the place. The American competitors are oh. about our age. The international competitors... There's, I think the British guy is in his 30s or 40s. Which we should say our age is mid-20s, for people yes. who don't know. Um, I'd say most of them are our age. Yeah. You know, probably late teens, early mid-20s, but you have several guys who are probably 30s, 40. So, it, yeah. you know, it, it's taken very seriously. Yeah, I of, guess, and, and I mean... Uh, Adding as an apology, I was probably a bit harsh because, I mean, I'm sure there are people who would think doing a movie podcast that hardly anyone listens to is something that only losers would do, too. And they're probably right. So, you know. just think. I guess it's just something. whatever you love, you do. Well, then there. So losers should like this because this is something <laughs> that they can do that will get them worshipped. I mean, the, the international... <laughs> worshipped by the Finnish. Right, worship by the finish. At least what is the prize? Oh, I don't know. I don't even know that there is one other than probably like a trophy or. They a, didn't. They didn't get in. Uh, there'd have to be because no one's going to go to Finland just for bragging rights. I, I, I mean, I'm sure it's there's an official prize. I don't think it's like a monetary reward. Yeah. Because I mean, it's not like you could sign these guys to a record deal or something like that. Oh, well, no. <laughs> Although I wouldn't put it past someone to try. Well, you know, hell, that's what a lot of our pop stars are, lip-syncing. How's that any different? No, you're right. I... Actually, it's worse because it's fraud. Whereas this, is this, you know it's their guitar. Yeah, they aren't hiding anything. They know they can't play in most cases, and like they're just there to rock out. And I had a rocking good time. I, I love the music. Again, I apologize for the review kind of being all over the place. It's <laughs> hard for me to describe without making it seem silly. And Air Guitar Nation is not silly. Um, I'm giving it a four and a half. All right. Well, that's actually a phenomenally good score. So I guess I'll have to check that out. After those two DVD releases, now we're going to talk about films of 2006 in our top five of the worst films of 2006. 
these are films that were so utterly horrible, uh, we better not find out if you guys go and see these. <laughs> Galen, will let you start with number five. Okay. I'm going to modify the rules right up front, <laughs> unfortunately. Okay. Uh, because I'm not going to say these are the worst films of 2006. They're the movies I hated the most. Um, and the reason for that distinction is that I'm sh I know I, I'm thinking of several movies right now that came out in 2006 that I never saw that I'm sure would be worse than these five. That's a very good. Point. I'm, I'm thinking of things like Little Man, which was so horrible I completely avoided. So that's one clarification. These are the worst the movies I hated okay. the most that I actually saw. All right, that, that's a good clarification. <laughs> Top five worst films of 2006 that we saw. Yeah, because I don't want to get an email that says, I can't believe you thought this was worse than Little Man or, you know, whatever. Because I probably would agree if I had suffered through Little Man. I don't know. I bet Little Man might have been an Oscar contender. Wow. More people would have given it a chance. That's like even sarcasm. I can't believe you said that. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to start now, after I added my little proviso. Uh, my number five is Casino Royale. I, you know, really hated this movie. I I thought it took the whole Bond franchise in a direction it didn't need to go. Because, I mean, for the ultra-realistic spy thriller, I think, you, you know, you have the Bourne movies, which are fantastic. And, um... Not that I want to say that a movie franchise can never change modes, because, I mean, I felt that really worked for the Batman series. Oh, definitely. In fact, that one, new one comes out soon, doesn't it? The Dark Knight? Yes. Um, I, I think this coming summer. But, um, you know, the thing is, James Bond, to me, is about male fantasy. And so it's about, you know, killing the bad guys, saving the world, looking great, getting the girl, you know... Drinking, smoking. Not getting slapped in the balls by a leather whip. <laughs> right, right. James Bond should not be tortured because that's not part of male fantasy. And to me, that's what James Bond's supposed to be about. But apart from that, I also felt that structurally the film had flaws. I hated the whole love plot was so clumsily added. It didn't really have a central villain. Uh, you know, the man they had disappeared you know, 45 minutes before the end of the movie, and then it's just kind of like a faceless entity that he's kind of going against. And to me, you need that central villain. That's the character of what makes a Bond film a Bond film. And, you know, so that in the love story, it just didn't work for me overall. Well, I certainly agree. Actually, I have Casino Royale on my honorable mention list. I did not like it either. You know, had that been a hot girl whipping him in the balls, that might have been a little bit of a turn-on. Some guys might fantasize about that. We have just found way too much out about you today. But some uh, old <laughs> dude with a bleeding eye, we could probably do without. Yeah, and yeah, it just didn't work. All right, well, my number five is an equally bad film, and probably even worse than I gave it credit for. I gave my <laughs> number five choice to 300. Wow, yeah. I mean, it's a senseless action I, movie. I, I don't want to quibble with you, but 300 uh, actually came out in 2007. I don't think that's true. I'm positive that it is. <laughs> I have my good friend IMDB to back me up on that. Yeah, it says 2006. Okay, go. 
All right. Well, I, I it was very close to 2007 when this came out. Yeah, and actually, you're kind of right because it did it did release in li very limited at a festival in 2006. So, all right, I'll grant you. And you would agree with me, it's a very horrible movie. And yes, yes. Some of the worst acting ever. The fight scenes, you know, as stylized as they are, I found them to be incredibly boring because it was pretty much the same thing over. I don't know how many times you can watch a spear going slow motion into somebody's chest. Oh, yeah. But we saw it probably 300 times. Yeah, <laughs> please. Being the fact that this was so close and you called me on it, I'll give you another one of my honorable mentions. Okay. And that movie is Miami Vice. Okay. <laughs> that was another movie I did not like. I could not follow it. It was had those cliche moments. Good night photography, but that was about all I had going yeah. for it. I can't quibble with that. Um, <laughs> my number four is one that I do not believe you saw, Dream Girl. You know, no, I did not see it. <laughs> there was some talk about this getting snubbed for Oscar nominations, but quite frankly, it was awful. I, <laughs> it, it was, uh, I believe I dubbed it Broadway shitwork. Uh, yes, you did. I like that. <laughs> and that's exactly and what the it was. Academy tends to eat that up. They do, but they didn't this time. <laughs> and it, it, it just was... First of all, I, I can't remember any of the songs, and that was true two days after I saw the movie. I couldn't remember any of the songs. And that, to me, is the, the most important thing that a musical has to have, is memorable music. I mean, when you think of great musicals, like The Sound of Music, Singing in the Rain, um, uh, My Fair Lady, what makes them great musicals is that you can remember almost every single song, and they're catchy. Dreamgirls did not have that at all. I mean, people talked about Eddie Murphy's performance, and it was fine, but it wasn't. It didn't deserve an Oscar. I don't even think it deserved a nomination. It was pretty much a run-of-the-mill type of performance. I think if it would have been anyone else besides Eddie Murphy in that role, no one would have even talked about it. So, that's, wow. that's my take on Dream Girl. Certainly take your word for that. I, I was aware that you did not like the film, and had I seen it and agreed with you, I'd probably put it on my list, too. My number four choice is a movie that I thought when it came out might be good because of its star power, but it ended up being one of the most contrived pieces of garbage of 2006, and that movie is Bobby. Oh, God. <laughs> I, I completely forgot Bobby, but it would have... forgot about it? Yeah. Well, it was a mental block. It was definitely a Freudian thing. Duplicate. I thought this would have been on your list, too. Oh, it would have been if I would have remembered it. Oh. Well, unfortunately, I did remember it, and it is terrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the the all-star cast you have is just put in... You know, such contrived characters. There's no real great performances. The highlight of the film is probably the old footage of Bobby Kennedy. Yeah, but and his speeches. Aside from that, the, the plot lines are so thin. The, the, the acting's nothing. The writing's nothing. Hell, the filmmaking's nothing. It's, it's really a nothing movie. Please avoid it at all costs. Yeah, like I said, I, it completely slipped my mind. 
that definitely I'll, I'll need psychoanalysis because it's probably hiding there causing me trauma not remembering it okay well my number three choice is pirates of the caribbean dead man's chest i love the first movie and even the third i kind of liked but the second was just so boring and it was so long and the the final sword fight lasts about 45 minutes and that's the thing and it, it's a bit like you were saying about 300 after a while even exciting action will become boring once you become used to it and i think after 45 minutes that happens i i mean uh roger ebert one of the things he always talks about is that you know talking's not necessarily more boring than action it's sameness that's boring you know, whenever you just have the same thing going on forever and ever. That's what bores you. And to me, that's exactly what the problem with Dead Man's Chest was. It just was the same action sequence for two and a half hours. I will agree with you that I wasn't wildly impressed with the Pirates of the Caribbean movies either. They are way too long. I actually probably feel... Of course, this isn't 2006. I dislike the third more than I dislike the second. Yeah. I, I, we, we disagreed on that, but... Yeah. But they both are pretty bad. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to head on to my number three choice. And it's another movie that, to this day, I'm not sure whether it was supposed to be played for cheesiness or a more serious tone, but the movie is The Black Dahlia. Oh, God, yeah. That's another yeah, this, one that I forgot. Oh, man. I know. Bad ones. Well, this movie was a mess. I mean, you know, it, it started out with a, a possible hint of interest, but it kind of just devolved. It was pretty boring. I think the worst part of it, though, was you had many moments where it just tried to cliche film noir to the point of comedy, and I don't think that was the film's intention. No, no. You know, as you said, a lot of the, the musical cues, you know, the, the orchestra swells and stuff got... Yeah, the close-ups. Too over-dramatic, over the close-ups, yeah. It, the movie just didn't work. The, the story was a bit confusing. To its credit, there might have been one funny character, and that was the wife of... Yeah. The, the rich guy, and I blocked the movie out. I'm sorry, I can't remember her character name, but those right. of you who have seen it probably know who I'm talking about. It's the only time I actually even thought this might be a bit of enjoyment I'm experiencing through this film. Well, to me, and to digress a little bit into The Black Dahlia, I did think it was meant to be a comedy, I think. I'm not 100% sure of that. but and and, I think that's what hurts it. Right, we right. We aren't sure. I... But I think that moment where that the mother flips out, yeah, I think that kind of is what you know. And then you have the sister drawing the dirty pictures at the dinner yeah. table, and I think that's the scene where I said, "Okay, this this is supposed to be funny. This isn't supposed to be taken seriously." And I, I think that De Palma was going so far into parody that it became a parody of itself. And um, so it left people confused because I'm, I think it was meant to be funny, but judging from reviews I've read, I'm kind of alone on that. 
So it obviously wasn't done well if that was uh, yeah, his intention. I think you actually made the better comment saying people were confused. I think that yeah. people didn't know what this was. Right. Including myself. I mean, I think yes. it was meant to be funny, but I can't guarantee that. Because there are, there are certain scenes that are so dark, like whenever the, the, the kids get murdered. You know, and it's like, it, that doesn't really belong in a comedy, you know? So there are scenes that don't belong in a serious film and scenes that don't belong in a comedy. And this has both. Yeah, and Brian De Palma is not the Cone Brothers, you know? They, they pulled it <laughs> off, but there aren't many who can. So, all right, well, we'll move on from that, but I think that was a good choice. My number two choice is Miami Vice, which you talked about, so there's no need to go into. Uh, like you said, beautiful cinematography, which you expect from Michael Mann. But the plot was just so convoluted, it was impossible to follow. And, and it was needlessly complex. There was yeah. no reason for it to be. No. It's just an action movie, for God's sake. Well, I think that's part of the problem. I don't think Michael Mann decided, uh, similar to De Palma in The Black Dahlia, I don't think Michael Mann decided whether he wanted it to be an action film, like he did in, say, Last of the Mohicans, or, which is just basically a straight, fun action film, or if he wanted to make it a serious crime drama like Heat. And I don't think he ever decided which way he wanted to go, and so you got this unholy marriage of the two, and it just, like De Palma in Black Dahlia, it fell flat because of it. I certainly agree with you there. Um, my number two choice is a movie that I had to decide whether or not I wanted to put on here, because if I put it on this list, that means I'm revealing that I actually saw the movie. I'm kind <laughs> of embarrassed about that. It was terrible, and the movie is RV. Oh my god, you did see RV. <laughs> yes, I did. How, I don't even want to know what number one is. Yeah, uh, well... I, I think it's worse. <laughs> While RV might contain moments of silly comedy, I mean, that's what it is, strictly a family comedy. Right. It certainly doesn't do anything to take the series above and beyond, and it just contains more poop jokes than I want to see. Whenever the uh, family is piping out the shitter there at the uh, trailer stop, and it kind of blows apart and sprays all over everything and everyone... I had about enough of the movie. Yeah, and what's with Curb Your Enthusiasm stars being in shitty movies? Yeah, I know. Poor no Cheryl pun intended Thomas. on shit, but... <laughs> right, well, yes, she is in this movie, but she alone can't save it. You know, worse yet is uh, the family that ends up chasing Robin Williams' character, played by Jeff Daniels. His family's just so annoying, I can't stand it. You know, yeah. they're, they're supposed to be goofball hick family that ends up turning out all their old Harvard graduates even though they look like rednecks but what they really are is annoying and they don't really provide much comedy to the movie well you know and that's the problem with shtick isn't it is that you know you have if you want to have an annoying character and I think the perfect example of this would be Jar Jar Binks from episode one <laughs> if you want to have an annoying character and use that for humor there is a certain point I mean, because you will laugh that, oh, he's annoying them, you know, and that, that will la make you laugh for a while. But there comes a certain point where the character becomes so annoying, he starts to annoy the audience as well as the, the 
characters in the film. And that's oh so bad. Yeah, you don't want to, you don't want to, annoyance is one of those emotions you don't want to evoke from your audience. <laughs> so that that is one of those problems with creating characters like that. Yes, I mean, a character that does that well, I think, is Cousin Eddie from the National Lampoon movies, particularly right. um, um, Christmas Vacation. and, right, and that, the first That's vacation. a great example. Yeah, I mean, he, he's annoying, but he doesn't cross that line to start annoying the audience. No, in fact, a lot of times the audience likes when his character's in the scene, because those are the type of annoyances that provide comedy, you know? Right. They're annoyances that usually lead to either funny jokes or slapstick comedy, yeah. whereas the character in RV, Jeff Daniels' family, they're just annoying. Yeah, like I said, you want them to annoy the characters, not the viewer. That's the bottom line. Well, trust me, if I could go back in time or erase my memory, this would have been... <laughs> like I did with Bobby. And Dahlia. Yeah, although Dahlia, I don't think, would have made my top five worst. Oh, jeez. I mean, it is bad, but it's almost campy bad, where it becomes enjoyable. Because I can't say that I was bored by it at all. But it was like a train wreck. It had a certain Jerry Springer appeal to it for me. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend seeing it, and I'd never see it again, but I didn't hate myself while I was watching it. Oh, okay. That's the highest recommendation I can give it. They should put that on the DVD case. <laughs> I didn't hate myself while I watched it. <laughs> All right. Well, now it's time for my number one. I think we may be on the same page here. We'll see. My number one most hated movie of 2006, Lucky Number Slevin. Oh, gee. <laughs> I despise... Here's one that I blocked. <laughs> That's not my number one. Well, it was very bad. early in the year. So, I mean, at least you have an excuse for that. But <laughs> I hated this movie. I, I remember whenever I first saw it, one of the first things I said is, I've never been annoyed by set design in a film before. And there were literally shots in the film where the sets were designed so poorly that the characters would, like, blend in. And it was difficult to view the character in front of the wallpaper. And it, it almost hurt your eyes. It was excruciating. Well, you know, what made it worse, too, is I think in a lot of the shots where you had two characters against a background of the wallpaper, I think the, the director made a conscious note of that you know, distraction of the wallpaper. And, you know, I think a lot of the shots were framed for the wallpaper more yeah. so than the characters. Because you have this empty space above the characters' heads as they're speaking in a dialogue of just busy, busy pattern wallpaper. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think the director wants the viewer to take note, and for the life of me, I can't figure why. And the film is so convoluted. I mean, talk about needlessly complex. And then they have a ridiculous twist at the end. Yeah. That is just know, insane. I, I did really want to like that movie, and maybe that's why I blocked it out, because I, I I wanted to see that movie when it came out. I thought it looked like it might be a cool type of film, very stylized, but... Yeah, it's, it's really a mess. Well, you know, the thing that pissed me off most about it is that you have Morgan Freeman and uh, Ben Kingsley, you know, t 
two terrific actors, and they're enemies in this film. You know, they're rival gang lords. And they have almost no scenes together, and when they do have scenes together, the dialogue just falls flat. But that the dialogue's a huge problem with this movie. It's written so stylized. Yeah. You know, it's like you have a writer writing it, and then you have some, you know, probably bullshit editor coming along saying let's you know turn this into like super stylized cop crime yeah. type it's a case of a writer succumbing to literary masturbation where they're just writing for themselves and right. they they don't have any desire to connect with the audience it's similar to what you accused quentin tarantino of i isn't it amazing how you knew i was just thinking I, about him i, I wasn't knew you gonna were. say anything though I was. Yeah, I, you accuse I him thinking. of that. I I disagree with you. I think sometimes, like in Jackie Brown, I think he succumbed to that a little bit, and I think there are moments in Kill Bill certainly where he succumbs to it. But I think he mostly steers clear. Well, but I tell you right now, I'll listen to any of Quentin Tarantino's dialogues over the Lucky Numbers Loving. Numbers Yeah, it's that bad. And what's worse is there was a movie in 2007 which is shaping up to be my least favorite of this year that came out which basically ripped this movie off called Smoking Aces. And <laughs> I mean I had almost the same things I hated about Lucky Number Seven, I hated about it. So it looks like people aren't done trying to cash in on the five insane people who like this garbage. And very insane they must be. <laughs> so that brings us down to my number one which is a movie I know you have not seen, or else it would be your number one, I'm pretty sure. Yes. And the movie is Click. Oh, God. With Adam Sandler. And, you know, this is another movie that I wanted to like. And at the start of it, the, the storyline stays along with the typical Adam Sandler type of humor. And, of course... We've all seen that before a million times in movies like Bill, Billy Madison, Happy Gilmore, you know, where it was really, really funny. And then it starts to get a little drier as he continues to make movies with the same type of humor. Yeah. But the Adam Sandler humor isn't the true problem in this movie. About halfway through when after Adam has found this device that he can use to travel forward in time and pause real life and all that type of bullshit – he starts to abuse it and continues on into the future. The movie's tone just takes a drastic turn into the serious side. I mean, so much so that you can tell the movie is trying to jerk tears out of you. You can tell the director, I think, is trying to pull almost Oscar-worthy performances out of these actors, and the actors themselves know, look, this is just a dumb little comedy movie. You know, it's not meant to be serious right turned in that direction uh once it got to the end i hate it. i can't believe i got through the whole thing i think maybe because i was hoping you know that these scenes would end and it would return back to the more you know ridiculous adam sandler type humor but it never did it just got serious more serious and as he travels through time and becomes older it gets even more serious and it didn't work. It did not work at all. You know, more so than the Black Dahlia being confused with its, you know, genre and tone. And same with 
you know, the other movies we've discussed, this one just is on another level. Yeah. You know, Adam Sandler humor does not jive at all well with, you know, coming of age drama, in this case, coming of old age. Yeah. And, and you know, facing problems of losing his family and, oh, it's, it's terrible. I just... I wanted to burn the disc. <laughs> wow. On that note, I think we're done with that. <laughs> I think that's a good place to stop. Um, you know, so if Adam Sandler turns out dead, we know who did it. Oh, no. I, I, don't get me wrong. I love Adam Sandler. Happy Gilmore, Billy Madison are two of my favorite comedies. But this one here, I don't know what the hell he was thinking. Yeah, well, I, I've definitely heard similar things to you on that subject. Um, so, Christopher Walken couldn't even save the movie. Yeah, that's pretty bad. You know, Domino is a movie, it's kind of a guilty pleasure. I don't really, it's probably, it's it's a pretty bad movie. I'll say it's very confusing and a, mostly a drug trip, but Christopher Walken and Mickey Rourke are awesome, and, and that's why I love yeah. the movie. Kira Knightley's hot in it, too. Yeah, what isn't but, she hot in? Right, and you know, Christopher Walken usually has that effect that even in a bad movie, hey, it's Christopher Walken, you gotta love it. Well, right. not so in this. Alright. Well, those are our list of top five worst movies, or most hated films of 2006, and I think, judging from our list, we could almost call it like the worst of the best of 2006, if that <laughs> makes any sense at all. I, I mean, because a lot of ours are movies that critically were well-received. Or at least, you know, at least over 60% on Rotten Tomatoes. But we just hated them Some for whatever yours, reason. Some of maybe, but not a, like RV wasn't. Well, no, no, RV and Click were Bobby not. wasn't. Bobby's close, but yeah. 300 was pretty highly rated on right. Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, and pretty much yeah. all of mine except for Lucky Number 11 had over 60%. Maybe not Dead Man's Chest, but... But yeah, so, you know, feel free to write to us and tell us why we're wrong. But keep in mind that we tend not to see truly horrible movies. So, yeah, keep that in mind when you're asking us why we thought these were. worst that we've seen. Yes. Okay, so next week we're going to have reviews of The 310 to Yuma, which I have seen already. Doug didn't get a chance to yet, so he will this week, and then we'll review it. And we're also going to have a review of the DVD release coming out this week, Away From Her, starring Julie Christie and Olympia Dukakis. It was very well received, so I'm eager to see that. Also releasing on DVD, but we probably won't talk about, is Snow Cake, which is one that I haven't even heard of until just tonight, but after reading it, it sounds interesting. It's a small independent film with Sigourney Weaver and Alan Rickman of Harry Potter fame, and, well, and tons of other things as well. But um, it's it's uh, a story of, like, he, he gives this woman a ride, and he ends up getting in a car accident and killing her, so he, like, looks for her mom, and he's suffering from guilt and things like that. It looks very interesting, mainly because of the <laughs> because of the actors in the film, um, and that's pretty much all coming out for DVDs. Nothing earth shattering this week. 
Uh, coming in theaters this Friday, though, we have a number of films. We have The Brave One, starring Jodie Foster as a DJ. Uh, I'm not sure how that looks, to tell you the truth. I'm kind of leery of it, but we'll see. Uh, we then have Across the Universe, which, Doug, you, do you want to fill people in on what you've heard about Across the Universe? Well, from what I was told, this movie was going to be a musical featuring primarily Beatles music, right. whether you're a fan of that or not. I am. I was looking forward to it. However, from what I'm reading, it didn't test well at, uh, through screen tests. I'm thinking they totally recut the film. And I believe even the, the original director's name, she's trying to get her name off of it. Wow. That's, so whether that happens, I don't know. I'll have to continue to look for, dig for more information. But as a Beatle fan, I was looking forward to the film. It's as interesting. As trippy as it probably was going to be. <laughs> well, it, it, I think it still does retain a lot of the music. But um, it's interesting, though. Any film that has Eddie Izzard and Bono as spirit guides is going to be different. That's for sure. <laughs> Um, and then we have the movie Eastern Promises from director David Cronenberg um, and starring Viggo Mortensen, who both teamed up for History of Violence, which this was pre-podcast, but that certainly would have been a fight had we... Oh, jeez, that movie sucked. It did not. You just sucked. blinded yourself because the audience we were watching it with I sucked. blinded myself because I poked my eyes out because the right. movie sucked so bad. Well, anyways, I think Eastern Promises looks very good, and I almost said promising, <laughs> but I eluded myself. So I, I think I might see that. Maybe maybe I'll talk about that in next week's show. We have the horrible-looking Mr. Woodcock with Billy Bob Thornton, and since that, um, what was it called? School of Men, or... School for Scoundrels. Yeah, ever since School for Scoundrels, it seems Billy Bob Thornton's just playing the same type of character, this jackass who's, like, super macho. Basically, you know, he's playing Billy Bob Thornton. I didn't ma mention this in my top five worst, but I have that listed here in my notes as an honorable mention, because I saw School <laughs> for Scoundrels, and it's pretty damn terrible. Why the hell did you watch all these bad movies? I don't know. I was going through a depression, I guess. I guess. And, and I just needed to watch some bad movies to lift myself up, thinking, oh, geez, it can't get any worse than these films. So no, I have no idea why I saw them. It's just drinking or something. I don't know. All right. The cocaine. You need to stop <laughs> it. Uh, then oh, wait. I'm a retard. That's right. Right. I, retard. I, that must be it. Retard evil moron, I think, is what yeah. I prefer. But yeah. Uh, then we have In the Valley of Ela, which is a story about Tommy Lee Jones, who is the father of a, a war veteran who ends up getting killed. And they look, uh, they begin an investigation. He teams up with Charlie Theron, who plays a detective, to find out what happened to his son. And then we have Dragon Wars, which <laughs> looks like it will be awful, but. Perhaps in a cool way, we'll see. But it's basically just a bunch of dragons get unleashed and start wreaking havoc all over the world. Yeah, you know, I read about that on IMDb, and it supposedly it took the director like five to six years to create the CG effects and stuff for this movie. And it's almost How like long? Alien, about five to six years. God, and if it sucks as bad as it looks, that's a complete well, waste of his time. You, if it takes that long, I'll bet it's going to look outdated. You know, it's one of those things where CG from 2000 to now, 
you can tell big, big difference. Well, I'll be honest. The previews, the, the special effects look pretty good. Which, who knows, they might be, but I just think it's funny because it, it's almost like a case of the alien where in the alien movie, the designer of the alien creature, he fell in love with his design. Yeah. And I, I think such is the case here. This this guy creating the CG pretty much fell in love with his creation. Yeah. Though it's not a physical creation. And well, an interesting thing, uh, the director is uh, Hyung Rae Shim, who is actually a very popular television comedian in Korea. So... Comedian? Yes, comedian. Oh. Um, but he also has done pioneering work in uh, sci-fi film as well, and special effects, so... We'll see. It, it seems strange. Maybe it'll be kind of a host thing, and almost a comedy type of... Well, the host, host was pretty good. If yeah. it's like that movie, I won't Yeah, so we'll see. So that's what's coming. As I said before, next week's show, we'll definitely have reviews of 310 to Yuma and uh, Away From Her. And we'll see what else we can get together for you. Okay, that's all for today's show. If you would like to review any of the ratings that we gave the movies that we covered today, please visit thosemovieguys.blogspot.com. There you can find more in-depth reviews, our star ratings, as well as links to items that we may have covered in the show. Plus, you can subscribe to our feed. Also, you can visit Google Groups at groups.google.com. When you're there, search for Those Movie Guys. You can post a message to our forums. And you can also email us at thosemovieguys at gmail.com. It's thosemovieguys at gmail.com. We look forward to any feedback that you can give us about why we're retarded. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye.